Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Elsie Elliott, later Elsie Too, was a social activist born in the north of England in 1913. She would die at well over 100 in 2015 here in Hong Kong. She witnessed the impact of the Great Depression in the poverty around her and would later become a missionary in mainland China. She was a member of the Urban Council from 1963 until 1995. And back in the 1950s, after moving to Hong Kong, she initially set up a tent school for mainland refugee children. While she was seen by many as an advocate for equal rights and social justice, of housing and welfare, she was not without controversy. Some saw her as a representative of the repressed in the 1966 Star Ferry riots. Others felt that she was seen as a heroine by the rioters. Elsie Elliott would marry her longtime friend and fellow teacher Andrew Tu when she was 70 years old. She was never afraid of taking on a fight and fought for Chinese to also be an official language alongside English. This is Elsie Tu talking in the 1970s on a programme called The Pleasure's Mine about her life and her roots while she also chooses some items of music. This I discovered in our RTHK library, so it's been edited down to fit the size of Hong Kong heritage. Welcome, and anyone with any knowledge of traditional British music will recognize that as being a piece which is customarily associated with Tyneside. And in fact, my guest tonight, Mrs. Elsie Elliott, is from Tyneside. Good evening to you. Good evening, Mr. Elliott. You, as I said, are from Tyneside. You were born in Newcastle. Oh, yes, I spent the first 23 years of my life there. I was fully educated there. <laughs> So, in other words, that tune must hold quite a few memories for you. Oh, yes. It was very popular in our house because we, we were very fond of singing and uh, we sang all the Tyneside songs and all the Irish songs. We were very fond of music. What were your parents doing? What, what were they? Oh, my parents were working people. At least my mother was a housewife, but uh, my father was a, a tram drive, a tram conductor. And uh, I believe that he was a, a tram conductor with very much like yourself, uh, very much of a social conscience. Yes. My father didn't have much education because he, he was an orphan at the age of 11. But for some reason or other, he had a very strong social conscience and he brought us up in, uh, to know all about politics and sports, of course. We we're very interested in sports. But my father always had the idea that someday I would go to the House of Commons and uh, I'd do something for the miners of... Newcastle. He wasn't a miner himself, but he was very sympathetic towards the miners. Yes, in fact, it's a very strong mining area in Newcastle. Oh, isn't yes, it? you know the saying, carrying coves in Newcastle. Well, 
not Newcastle itself, but the villages around Newcastle are all mining villages. And Durham, of course. Uh, yes, Durham. Do you have any recollections of, of the kind of conditions that existed for, Dur for, for miners in the area? Oh, yes, I do, I, because I used to teach in a school in the mining area, and I used to visit the homes of the children, and I found that their average wage at that time was about half the wage of my father, and that wasn't a very good wage. So they really had reason to strike at that time for better wages. In intolerable conditions. They're much better now. Uh, I, they told me at that time that there was scarcely a miner's family in the village that hadn't suffered from some injury or even death. Well, you didn't go on, in fact, to become a member of parliament, but you did go on to become very involved in social issues in Hong Kong, and that's a subject that we're going to come to naturally later on. But before we come on to these areas, would you say that your experiences in Newcastle, seeing the miners and so forth, played a major role in shaping your, your vision of the world? Most definitely, uh, especially with the influence of my, of my father, because uh, he used to educate us into believing all people are equal, and uh, he used to teach me that if I got a university education, I shouldn't be proud of it, I should regard that as a responsibility. And uh, we lived in Newcastle at the time of the Great Depression, and it was quite an education to watch the people standing at street corners, waiting for a job, gambling, just to try and earn an extra copper. Yes, but you did in fact go on to university, didn't you? But, or more specifically, to teach a training college. Uh, yes, I was rather fortunate. I was the first in our family to get the chance of better education. I went to secondary school on a scholarship, and then I got another scholarship into the university. And after that, I took a, a course as a teacher. In the, I took a diploma in education. Was, what reason did you go on to teaching? Uh, if you were so well immersed in social problems, or at least so well aware of social problems in the area, why teaching? It was practically the only job open to me because, uh, in, because I got a, a scholarship and a bursary, as you might say. I, I had to go into teaching for a certain number of years to merit the bursary, you see, and teaching was the only job open. I had no special attraction to that. You may laugh if I say that I wanted to be a civil servant. I don't believe it. <laughs> but I, looking back now, I feel thankful I wasn't. And, of course, teaching will have subsequently led you on into a lot of different areas. But while you were at school and while you were at university, your interests weren't purely the people around you, the social conditions around you. What else were you interested in? What other activities and pursuits did you have? I was very interested in games, quite crazy about games. I would join in any game, and every day of my life I played some game, matches all over the place. And uh, we used to talk at home about sports and games. We, I knew every football team in the league, and I knew the state of every cricket team. <laughs> but the strange thing is I never went to a football match. My father always said he would take me to one, but we never reached the point when I could go to one because we were not well enough off to afford to take the whole family. And my father seldom went himself. I think that uh, probably you're too modest to say so, but um, you did, in fact, have more colours than anybody else at that particular time in sports, didn't you? And you were also one of the school's leading scholars. Well, I, I got the best result in the school certificate in my year, and uh, I did have colours for lacrosse and rounders, netball, 
gymnastics, sports, and uh, even for netball, although that was a sort of second choice of game. Lacrosse was my first choice. How about music? Did you ever find time for that? Uh, no, I, I was interested in music. I loved music. Not very highbrow, mind you. We liked folk songs in our house. I was just fond of it, that's all. I never had the chance to study music. What kind of songs would you sing when you were at home? Oh, uh, of course, all the Tyneside songs. We knew every one of them. You know, her name's Cushy Butterfield and all this sort of thing. But um, we were very fond of Irish songs. to take up your first teaching post. Where was that? That was in Halifax, Yorkshire. Right. It was very industrialised, but you could walk out of the smoky city, which had about a hundred chimneys, as we always said. You could walk out of this smoky city in about half an hour and be in the most beautiful countryside, woods and meadows and uh, mountains. It's a it lovely really area lovely, of Yorkshire. Yes. But the war was looming at the time, and uh, I did train for civil defence at that time. I took a course in area precautions. How were you affected by the war when it did eventually come? Well, in Halifax, nothing really much except false alarms. The very first night of the war, we had a false alarm and everybody went running into the street. But um, I left Halifax soon after the war began, went to Newcastle, and there my experience was not such a happy one because we did have bombs there. And some of my best friends were killed in those air raids. You, in fact, went on later on, um, a number of years later, to become a missionary. You abandoned teaching. What were the reasons for this? I'd always planned to be a missionary from the time I was in the university. During the time I was at home, before I went to university, my father was an agnostic and I was an agnostic. I think my father and brother and I were very close in that way. But when I went to university, I got in with a group of students who belonged to an evangelical union and I had a very strong religious experience which turned the whole course of my life from politics to religion. And yet, certainly on the strength of recent years, certainly the publicity that surrounded you has been all in terms of the, the social uh, reform and so forth. Was 
this still very prominent in your thinking, uh, even after your religious conversion? For many years, yes. I think you may come later to the point where I seem to go right back into the previous relig uh, political street, as you might say. But uh, at that time, from my university days, right until I came to Hong Kong from China, missionary life was the life for me, at least I thought it was. In a sense, though, we're, we're jumping ahead, we're, we're yes. jumping the gun, yes. because you still have another choice of music, uh, which I believe takes you back to your, your early years. Uh, the, the, the choice is to music. Oh, yes. What is the significance of this for you? Well, this was a kind of theme tune with me, because you know how every adolescent goes through disillusionment. Uh, you have big ideas about what life is going to be, and you find that it's, it's not just like that. And uh, I think life uh, during the adolescent age is ups and downs. And uh, this song to music used to be consoling to me. When I was feeling miserable, I used to sing this and feel better.
It's very often said, actually, that um, people who come from working-class beginnings who have a strong social motivation do have this problem of speaking in public. It's one of the main obstacles which they have to overcome. I was reading about Bevin, who had a similar experience, apparently. But you managed to overcome it nonetheless. Well, I've spoken all my life. I've had to, from the age of, say, 19. But I can't ever say that I really enjoyed. Once I get started, I don't mind. It's beforehand, worrying beforehand that wor that upsets me. But you mentioned earlier that um, while you were at university, I think it was, that you had a religious experience. What was this? Well, I met some students who told me that um, religion isn't just some sort of creed, but it's something that can influence the life of the person, a very personal thing. And... Uh, I suppose I was disillusioned at that time, you know, just the way people get disillusioned at the age of 19, and um, I believed what they said because they looked so happy. I accepted what they said, and certainly this belief changed my life. I'd been an agnostic and I became a Christian, and the first thing I wanted to do was go and tell everybody. Including and your I family, did. no doubt. I did. I told my, my family and my father was very much influenced by what I said. He didn't react with horror? No, my father was very sympathetic and he, in fact, he told me that life was very difficult, it was very difficult for him to change at that point, but he said he, he thought he could see such a difference in me that he wanted to go the same way. In fact, your religious experience was to have a very profound influence on your life because eventually you gave up teaching to come out to the East as a missionary. I wanted to go straight away to the mission field. What held you back? The missionary societies wouldn't accept anyone who hadn't finished education. They said, just finish your education first. But then you came out to the East, to China, in fact. Yes. Uh, then, of course, I was teaching for two years when the war broke out, and no one could come out to China then. And I had to wait till the war was over, and it was actually at the end of '47 when I came out here. You found yourself then straight out from the UK, I would assume fairly limited experience of the world, thrown into war-torn China. That yes. must have been quite an upset. It was quite an upset, yes. It was really terrible in China in those days, and the inflation is just incredible. You just didn't know today how much your money was going to buy you tomorrow. But what work were you did you find yourself immersed in? Study of the language, Mandarin. And that was the main job for the next three years, which was the, the full time I was there. I did very little else except study. And of course, I was thrown into speaking again, my favorite occupation. I had to take a Sunday school class after studying Mandarin for three months. Good Lord. I don't know what the children understood of what I said. <laughs> they could un understand my simple questions, but I couldn't understand their answers. <laughs> but then after that, after this three-year period, you found yourself in Hong Kong. Why did you... Obviously, the, the civil war had come to a conclusion in China. Why did you have to come out at that stage? It wasn't the case of had to come out. We were about 18 months under the nationalists, and then when the communists came, we were 18 months under the communists. And um, the, the, the China Inland Mission decided to leave. Now, when you returned to Hong Kong, what happened then? Did you continue to work as a missionary? Oh, yes. We were going to go... The group of us were going to go on to Borneo, which is, of course, also... Um, in need of missionaries, or was in need of missionaries. And uh, when we arrived in Hong Kong, we met some of our friends who'd run out of China, and they said, stay with us. Well, we did stay, <laughs> and I've been here ever since. <laughs> that was 1951 until now. 
But at what stage did you resume your teaching work? Because this is what you, this, uh, I believe, has taken up the bulk of your time in Hong Kong. Is that correct? Yes. In 1953, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't go on with the normal missionary work because the people we were living amongst were so terribly poor. Even to take them to a meeting was forcing them to lose 10 or 20 cents of their earnings. And I noticed that their children had no schooling and I wanted to set up a school. So I managed to get a, a very small piece of land on permit from the government and uh, bought a, an army tent, set up the tent with 30 students, and that was my first Form 1. <laughs> so you felt that really that it was the, the earthly needs that were needed administering to rather than the spiritual at that stage? I, I did. I felt that, uh, well, some people wouldn't agree with me on this, but as far as I was concerned... Oh, in fact, I'd already become disillusioned with missionary work by this time, so the two worked together. Was it this disillusionment with missionary work in isolation from Christianity, or both? I think it was in isolation from Christianity, to some extent. But I felt we went to China believing we were going to preach to the heathen, and it was quite a shock to me to get to China and find that the, the so-called heathen had a lot to teach me. And I began to think, well, what arrogance to think that my religion is the only one. In a sense, what you've been saying, all of what you're saying, betrays your beginnings, which were very much as a, a person among the people, um, very much of a grassroots beginning. I think so. I think I always viewed things from the point of view of the other person who was receiving what I was supposed to be giving. And I came to the conclusion that they had a lot more to give than I had. Talking earlier about your introduction to Hong Kong, you were saying that you were appalled at the poverty and the, the fact that going to a meeting would cost uh, a worker a reasonable amount of his wage. Were conditions really that bad? Absolutely terrible. Um, a worker could work at that time all day long and he was lucky if he could make a dollar or a dollar twenty. And if a woman came to a meeting and had to spend an hour, she would lose 20 cents. And that, to her, was a lot of money. Is this, more than your early experiences, what brought you really into the field of social reform? Well, was it I sort of this, this sudden awareness? I think it emphasized it. I think it brought it to a climax. I'd been thinking about it. I've never been a person for the theoretical things or for ideologies or um, ritual, I've always wanted to be down to earth and uh, I just felt I couldn't go ahead when I saw people suffering like that. I wanted to speak out but my mission wouldn't allow me to. Is this one of the factors that made you get out of it? Partly. There were many factors. Uh, my association with a very narrow-minded group, the brethren were very narrow-minded, and uh, the conditions I met. And I, th I suppose my, my roots were really in politics and social, uh, social affairs. So your roots were there, but did you find from now on that you were beginning to get more and more involved? Oh, yes. I used to go around the, the hut area and talk to the people, and I found that they really lived in the most appalling conditions. Unbelievable. They'd be working 14 or 16 hours a day. I'm talking 25 years ago, of course. Conditions here now are pretty bad, but very much better than they were then. What steps did you start taking? Obviously, you'd set yourself up with a, an army tent, and you had the basics of a, of a school. 
the rud yeah. a rudimentary school, shall we say. But what did you start doing to try and further these people's needs? Well, they used to come to me with problems, as they do now, and I would go to the department concerned and try to find some help. I remember going to, to a prison once and walked out with a prisoner. <laughs> I, I don't know how I got him out, I can't remember. But I used to do this kind of thing. And uh, I remember going to the police station one day and, and complaining because some children were get, getting killed with the... There was a road there and uh, no speed limit. And child after child was either maimed or killed. And I went in there and just stormed the place till they put up a notice, children, go slowly. This kind of thing. Do you, have you seen your role as that of a go-between, a mediator, or, or somebody who is almost an ambassador? I prefer to uh, identify myself with the people. I don't like to be the sort of uh, do-gooder and a big white chief who uh, you know, tries to do good for the people. I like to identify myself with them and, and suffer with them if possible so that I understand the suffering. And I did suffer when I, was, when I left the church. I had to work very hard as hard as the people did, in order to earn a living and, and keep up the school. I had to earn a thousand dollars a month to put into the school to keep it going. Did you, have you ever felt that you've been taken advantage of at all by any of the people on whose behalf you've worked? I've, I don't particularly feel that. I've no doubt I have been, as everybody does get taken advantage of. Tell me the person who does social work and doesn't get taken advantage of. But um, generally speaking, I think the people are a decent crowd. I think the working and the poor people are really basically good people. But you also took it on yourself to write a lot to the press. You've used the media fairly extensively. This, I suppose, can have been counterproductive in some ways in that um, it has been said, some people claim that you have gone too far, that you have become, as you said before, possibly a do-gooder. Um, do you feel that there's any justification in that? I don't really think so, because for every letter I write to the press about one case, I do 50 other cases that I don't write to the press about. I only write to the press when I feel that there's no other possible way. I've gone to the department concerned, I've done my utmost on the case, and I feel that the only way left is publicity. In fact, that advice was given to me by a government servant, a doctor, many years ago. He said, when you get into a tight corner with this bureaucratic crowd, write to the press and make them hot under the collar. <laughs> does this really work? Well, unfortunately, it does. And I said unfortunately because I think it's a great pity that you can't get do things done without putting them in the press. I think it's a great pity that people don't have that compassion and feeling of justice that they'll do things without, first of all, being made to look small and, and bad. <laughs> How do you answer the, the critic who calls you a troublemaker? What's your reply to them? I don't usually reply. I don't think it's worth replying to a thing like that because I'm not a troublemaker. My purpose is to help people uh, or at least to try to get a, base, a basic amount of justice for people. And uh, the last thing I want is trouble. Very often there are cases where, that I could make trouble over, but I'll say, well, for the sake of the client who came for help, I'll say nothing about the corruption or the neglect or this and that and the other because I don't want revenge to be taken on the client. And for his sake, I'll keep quiet on that. We've been talking about some of the people who, who criticize, who disagree with what you're doing, but on the other hand, there are many who don't disagree, many who have applauded you for, for what you're doing. In fact, you've received awards in recent years for your work. Yes, quite a big shock. Last year, I was awarded the Mag Saisai 
award. I really can't understand what led to that. But uh, I went to Manila to receive it in August last year. And this year, of course, the quite a lot of people got the Queen's Silver Jubilee Medal, and I was one of them. And many congratulations to you, of Thank course, you. for that. Before we wind up, what I'd like to ask you is, you have seen Hong Kong from a reformer's point of view for the past 25 years. Has it come as far as you would have hoped? Has it come as far as you would have expected? Uh, no, it hasn't. In fact, I think in the past few years it's been going backwards. I think it did make a lot of progress in the 60s, especially going towards the higher 60s. But I think in the 70s we've been going down again. I think we got to the top of the graph, now we're curving down again. And that is very disturbing. In some ways we are improving, slowly, too slowly. But I think that um, we're still far from what we should be. Elsie Elliott there, who became Elsie Too, talking there on the programme The Pleasure's Mine in the 1970s. Thanks for listening and join me next on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>